Our New Testament reading for the morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and you'll find it on page 197 in your pew Bibles in the New Testament. Hear these words from the scriptures. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me just say how terrifying it is to stand here, to be invited to preach by Andy, who is, uh, is an excellent preacher in and of himself. Um, and also to be standing here in this church that uh, was so much a part of the life of my parents over their time as members here at St. Matthew's. And so um, it's a little bit, uh, uh, anyways, you know how it goes. Anyway, so it is actually literally terrifying. So, so I hope that I live up to whatever expectations uh, uh, Andy might have for me, but I also recognize it as a great honor and privilege to be able to step into someone else's pulpit, and I really do appreciate you, and thank you so much, Andy, for that. So will you pray with me? <clears throat> Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. So you just heard the word of Paul to the letter, uh, in his letter to the church at Philippi, and it is, I have always thought, one of the boldest statements that Paul makes in his vast correspondence with his churches. Work out your own salvation. Doesn't that make you go, what? Work out my own salvation? Doesn't doesn't this statement fly in the face of Paul's other writings about salvation? In Romans 4, for example, he says, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something else, as something due. But to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. It was not Abraham's work that brought him favor before God, says Paul to the Romans, but his belief, his faith and trust in this God who called him from Ur of the Chaldees, and brought him over many, 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 may I say many years, into the promised land. And then, very clearly in what sounds like the opposite of what he is saying to the Philippians, Paul goes on, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. Whereas to one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, such faith such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Isn't salvation here in Romans, according to Paul, a free gift offered to us without meriting it, without working to deserve it, because of what Jesus Christ does for us 
in willingly going to the cross on our behalf as the full sacrifice and atonement for our sins. Paul says so, says so himself earlier in Romans when he says, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. So, if Paul says to the Romans, not works but faith, what in the world is Paul saying to the Philippians and to us that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trebling? It is perhaps appropriate for me to say here that as a New Testament scholar, my ministry appointment is to the faculty at George Washington University in D.C., which is why I get to live in Mississippi, um, because most of the work that I do is virtual. But as a New Testament scholar, Paul has never been my cup of tea. All of his arguments, his exhortations, his instructions, do this, don't do that, believe this, don't believe that. I'm a gospel girl through and through. I focus primarily on the stories of the unnamed women in Matthew, Mark, John, and especially in the Gospel of Luke. So if you ever want to lose an hour of your life, ask me to tell you about Luke's story of the bent-over woman. And I've got a book on it, too. Anyway, but, but I have often, I've always given Paul a wide berth so as not to have to deal with some of his more uncomfortable statements such as women being silent in church. In the past 10 years or so, however, as I have continued to teach the New Testament to undergraduates at the George Washington University, I've come to appreciate Paul's incredibly imaginative thinking about who Jesus of Nazareth is and how those of us who follow him should be relating to him, to each other, and to the world. It is Paul who makes it possible for us to become Christians without first becoming Jews. For he was insistent that it was by faith that Abraham, before the law existed, came to and was justified by God. Paul's belief then was why shouldn't Gentiles also be able to follow Jesus without first becoming subject to the law? In other words, becoming Jews. It is Paul who insisted that there was no Jew or Greek, nor no male or female, no slave or free in Christ Jesus. And so all persons are invited into the body of Christ who have faith in God's saving action through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, regardless of their previous religious affiliation or gender or class. It is Paul who insisted that this saving grace is a free gift to us, no payment necessary on our behalf other than to believe and to follow this Jesus of Nazareth who is the risen and descended anointed one of God. So, work out our own salvation? You can, I hope, see why I think this statement is so bold, so different, anyways, from the Paul I know from his other letters to his churches around the Mediterranean. 
As often happens when I'm confused about things like salvation or justification, I like to turn to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and one of the most prolific thinkers and writers about what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, to see how he understands some of these more challenging aspects of Christianity. And when it comes to our topic for today, he doesn't disappoint for salvation, justification, grace, and works are subjects Wesley spent many hours discussing and clarifying both to we who are Methodist Christians and to many who disagreed with Wesley's understanding of them. There are hundreds, there are thousands of pages of him talking about these topics. One of Wesley's distinctive ways of understanding grace is that it comes to us in three phases. The first is what Wesley calls prevenient grace, grace that invites us into the love and presence of God without us even realizing it, perhaps through an encounter with someone who lifts our heart when we are feeling down and alone, or through a piece of music that fills our hearts with longing for something we can't even name. It may be seeing a congregation reach out to meet the needs of people who are not already part of their body of faith. They're part of the body of faith. Or it might be someone who is willing to take a stand on a matter of conscience and accept the consequences of doing so publicly. There are many ways that God works to woo us into relationship with him before we are aware of what we are seeking. Then, as we become aware of who is calling us into relationship and how that relationship can restore the original image of God in which we are created but have lost in our pursuit of the things of this world, we move into right relationship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. As we do that, we are moved to repentance for all that we have done that distorted the image of God in which we are made through sin through making idols of the things of this world, such as money or fame or possessions. As Andy described last week, the places and things where we do not invite Jesus to be Lord of our lives, believing we can make it on our own. As we feel repentance for the things that we have done or left undone, and cast ourselves on the forgiveness of God, trusting that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are indeed forgiven, we are indeed made whole again, we experience what Wesley called justifying grace. His famous description of his experience at the Aldersgate Meeting House in May of 1738 helps me to understand clearly what justifying grace is all about. He says, about a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. For me, my Aldersgate experience is the words of institution every time we celebrate Holy Communion. That's where I experience and and am reminded of justifying grace. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, the Lord Jesus took the bread, gave thanks to you, O God, broke the bread, and gave it to each person who was sitting at the table with him. The betrayer Judas the denier Peter, 
and the ten who deserted him in his deepest hour of need later that evening. And to them all, he says, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Through these words, I am reminded that in each of the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, even Judas is included in the sign of the new covenant. For if salvation is not available to Judas, then how can it be available to me when I betray or deny or desert Jesus? And so with the biblical witness as my guide, I too feel my heart strangely warmed and trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and am assured that he has taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This assurance, this justifying grace then, leads us then to what John Wesley described as sanctifying grace. The reminder that being justified by faith is not an end, but a beginning. It is the start of a life lived in joyful obedience to God, who calls us to live as those who are restored to the image and glory of God's self in this world as well as in the world to come. Sanctifying grace is the grace that enables us to grow into mature Christians, uh, Christians who do, in fact, understand and live out that Jesus is Lord of all aspects of our lives, who are actively engaged in the regular practices of the means of grace, or what are often called works of piety and mercy, both individually and in cooperation with others. And our children's moment this morning so beautifully exemplified the ways in which we live out sanctifying grace through prayers, through reading the Bible, through coming to church, to being together with each other, to uh, also engaging in, in uh, works of mercy, of doing good work for others, visiting the sick, seeking justice, ending oppression, and so on. So here we come again to this pesky word of work, the works of piety, the works of mercy that we are invited as part of sanctifying grace to engage in. What I discovered on this journey of exploring Wesley's understanding of salvation is that he completely agrees with and utilizes Paul's imperative that we work on our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, as Paul continues in verse 13 of Philippians 2. Wesley uses the metaphor of a house to describe these three phases of salvation. Prevenient grace might be thought of as the driveway or the sidewalk leading up to the house, which ends as we step onto the porch of repentance, ready to knock on the door of justifying grace. As we accept that we are saved through the free gift of Jesus' atoning sacrifice offered to us without our deserving it, we step over the threshold and through the door into the house of sanctifying grace. It is as we move through the rooms of the house, going about our daily lives, that our actions, our works, reflect this new assurance that we have of forgiveness and the desire to work with God to bring God's vision for his creation into being in the here and now, and not just in some distant future form of eternal life. We work with God to bring salvation, wholeness, peace, justice, 
compassion, and love to God's whole creation, working with God to restore it to its intended state where God saw what he had made, and it was very good. We are, through the gift of salvation, invited to be at work with God in this ministry of creation for God's good pleasure, to do what is pleasing to God. Let me invite you then this morning to join me at the house of God's grace. Whether you are just coming up the driveway, standing on the porch of repentance, or ready to cross over the threshold of justification by faith, or living in the house of sanctification. For in each of these places, we are at work on our own salvation, but with God's help. Thanks be to God, who creates us in his image, and who gave us his Son, that we might be saved. Amen.